Insole International, in conjunction with the Early Research Academics Committee, presents Insole Talks. Hello everyone and welcome to this edition of Insole Talks. My name is Richard Fritz. I'm a research fellow at Stellenbosch University in South Africa and a member of the INSOL ERA committee. Now, I will be your host for this interview today with Professor David Millman. David is a professor at Lancaster University, where he has been working since 2005. Previously, he was at the University of Manchester, where he also spent some time as Dean of Law. His main research interests are corporate law, insolvency law, and partnership law, and he has published widely in these fields over the years. So welcome, David, and thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for the invitation. So let's start off by asking, how did you decide to pursue your career in insolvency law, or how did you get into this field of law? Not by design, probably by default, if I was honest with myself. I was an undergraduate law student at the University of Birmingham in 75, 76, and I had great difficulty in securing what were called articles in these days, a training contract. I wasn't very well connected socially. I came from a fairly humble background, and I struggled. So what I decided to do was to take, in effect, a a year's breathing space, and I registered to do an LLM by research at Birmingham University under Professor Robert Pennington. And within a few months of doing that, I actually realized that I enjoyed working on my own and researching. So I converted it into a doctorate. I received funding from the state at the time, which was fairly generous. And really, that's where it all began. The topic I chose to do my research in was bank debentures, which was, again, Professor Pennington's main area of research. And we worked through that for a couple of years. I got my doctorate. And then I progressed to my first post at the University of Manchester in 1978. And to some extent, my interest in insolvency law really began in that period. And since then, of course, I've branched out not merely from the area of corporate law, but into the area of personal insolvency law, in which I have a great interest. So that's the story, basically. Okay. Is there anything specific about insolvency law as compared to other fields of law that interest you or that stand out for you that makes it unique? I think there are two aspects that do appeal to me. I think, first of all, insolvency law is what I would call a second generational subject in that you do need some understanding of corporate law, commercial law, property law, equity in order to to get to grips with it. So I like the idea that it was a second generational subject. But secondly, I think there are areas of corporate insolvency law and indeed personal insolvency law that raise pretty fundamental issues of fair play, justice, etc. And it's those issues which, which do interest me. That's very interesting. 
I like how you call it the second generation field. And it's, it's interesting that many other persons point to similar reasons, actually, for liking insolvency law. So it's, there's definitely something about that aspect of insolvency law that's attractive to many people. I think you could also add that, of course, it has developed since then. And in, in some areas, cross-border insolvency is probably a third generational level. Yes, yes, definitely. I wonder what will be the fourth generation. Exactly. Space law, presumably. <laughs> Interstellar. So in your view, what are the main purposes of insolvency law? What should be the main purposes of insolvency law? What interest should it serve in society? And do you think... Any of these purposes have changed over time or should they change? What are your views on this? Well, I've cheated here. And the answer to the the main question is actually found in the body of the Cork Report, which reported in 1982 and is really the key policy document for what has happened in UK insolvency law. If you look at paragraph 198 of the Cork Report, you will find there 12 aims or goals listed for insolvency law. I'm not going to bore you by reading them out, but they're they're fairly wide-ranging. They cover the need to protect the public, to protect the interests of the debtor, to investigate the reasons for the financial distress, to offer the hope of rehabilitation, etc., etc., To my mind, that is the best summary of the goals of insolvency law. And of course, they have grown with the passage of time. Issues like rehabilitation weren't very much to the fore prior to the court report. They did exist, but they weren't to the fore. To add on to that, I think you might have answered it already, but how do you think insolvency law has changed over the years since you started looking at insolvency law? Is there anything specific that you noticed over the years? Well, first of all, of course, it's become much more complicated. The system of insolvency law before the Cork Report, we're looking at the late 70s. I won't say it was primitive, but it was pretty one-dimensional. Just look, for example, at the types of insolvency regime that were available in those days, both corporate and personal. You know, the They've multiplied on a number of occasions. So it was a much simpler regime. I think it was a regime that was very much geared to protecting the interests of secured creditors. Contract was king, floating charge ruled the world. Now, of course, we have a multiplicity of regimes. We have a much more sophisticated defining of relationships. We've made attempts to try and improve the position of unsecured creditors, but it's still a pretty awful position to be in if you're an unsecured creditor, particularly of a limited liability company. Undoubtedly, the issue of rehabilitation has come to the fore. It's almost become an obsession, really. And as I've got older, I've probably become a bit more sceptical about rehabilitation. I sometimes think legal systems are trying to do too much on that front and the the gains achieved, if any, are only marginal. So in that sense, I've probably become inclined to the sort of shumpet of view of creative destruction. And how do you think, um, looking at, obviously you work on English law mostly, I assume, 
How do you think um, international and regional developments have impacted the position in the UK? So the UNCITRAL work, the European Union works, how have they impacted the UK, if at all? I am very much, uh, as you've indicated, a, a domestic English lawyer. Those bodies, those initiatives clearly have had an impact And when we were a member of the EU, bankruptcy tourism was very much to the fore. And uh, it was a great financial benefit to UK PLC. Not so today. We still have the cross-border insolvency regulations, which are generating some interesting cases from all four corners of the globe. We also have a common law though the precise parameters of the common law jurisdiction on insolvency cooperation are the subject of considerable judicial debate that goes on and on and on. We've had a recent Court of Appeal judgment where the the principles have been reviewed. So the short answer in terms of the European measure and UNCITRAL is it's had limited effect. I think we need to go back a step and go back before to a time before these initiatives. One of the great changes in UK insolvency law was the arrival on the scene in the mid-70s of the title retention clause, which, of course, was developed in the Netherlands and in Germany. And its arrival on our shores did significantly change the system of UK insolvency law. It forced us to to look at priority issues. And that was an entirely organic development, not associated with any supranational organisation. So the short answer is there has been some impact in terms of our position within the world. It's not always entirely down to political initiatives, but there has been some impact, certainly. Yes, it's, it's interesting to look at the difference between more organic changes through economic reasons, perhaps, or just commercial needs, as opposed to more top-down um, international initiatives. And I guess much can be said for which is more successful than the other. What do you think about the future of insolvency law? Or what things happening in the world today? Where do you think things are going? Do you foresee any significant changes as a result of just what's happening in the world these days? Well, certainly insolvency as an economic phenomenon will not go off the radar. It's likely to be much more high profile. The economy was picking up, I think, pre Ukraine, but clearly there will be additional pressures this autumn, and I think most people do expect a, a further growth in insolvency in the years to come. The simple fact is insolvency will always be with us. It's rather like ill health. There will be peaks, there will be troughs. I think we are reaching the point where we do need to consider whether continually pursuing rehabilitation is going to actually achieve much. As I say, I've become more sceptical. The new breathing space scheme introduced 
in the UK by the Corporate Insolvency and Governance Act has had very little take-up as far as I can see. And I, I think it's probably in many senses best left to the, the business community to deal with these issues rather than legislative intervention. I think there will be some further action in the area of personal insolvency law in the UK, trying to help individuals who are in debt. It looks to me as if the state is going to move into what we might call the IVA sector and introduce its own statutory debt repayment scheme. That will be interesting. I think it will happen. It may well be that from a perspective of creditors that they increasingly look to non-insolvency procedures to collect what is owed to them. This might involve charging orders, third-party debt orders or garnishee orders. Issues like that could well come to the fore. Uh, I think there will be developments. It's just how those developments will actually pan out. You raise some very interesting points. I, th- I guess it's also a matter of, of realizing that as valuable as insolvency can be, it also has its limits, especially the point you make about rehabilitation. Um, it might be noble goals to push it in certain directions, but one must also be careful to not exceed what it's, what's possible. Yeah, I think, and I'm probably going to tread on a few toes here, I think the problem with the rehabilitation strategy is that it appeals to so many powerful groups. It appeals to the profession. It appeals to politicians. It might even appeal to academics. But you just have to look at the results. I think one of the areas where we could really do with some good research on is what has happened to particularly businesses that have gone through a rehabilitation procedure, have they resurfaced in the list of casualties two or three years down the line? And if that's the case, you then have to ask, apart from maybe a short-term benefit, is there any real benefit in rescue? So if there are any young academics listening, I think that would be a profitable area for research. Good. I hopefully, hopefully there are some listening and making notes. I think it's, 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 you know, it raises really interesting questions about the, the balance also between something looking good or sounding good, even politically, yeah. as you mentioned, it might sound good to everyone, but is it, does it really make the impact that we yeah. wanted to make? So perhaps we can talk a little bit about your research. Are you currently working on something interesting or have you recently published something interesting? Well, my main research commitment is to maintain the annotated guide to insolvency legislation, which has now been around since 1985. The 25th edition is now in press and I'm already working on the 26th edition. This is an annual publication primarily directed towards practitioners, which seeks to keep practitioners up to date on developments in insolvency law. Now, it's an annual publication. Some years it's been relatively quiet. For example, I would say for the 25th edition, it's been relatively quiet. 
But in other years, it's been horrendous in terms of just keeping on top of development. So when the insolvency rules were reformulated in 2016, that was an absolute nightmare. The Corporate Insolvency and Governance Act a couple of years ago, that involves significant change. So there is a fair amount of research done on that. I would say every day of the week for 365 days a year, I do something on that along with my co-author, Peter Bailey. We also provide regular fortnightly updates through the Westlaw system. So that takes an awful lot of time. Since the departure and death of Len Seeley a couple of years ago, obviously the workload there has increased. Now, I do try to pursue other research activities. I'm doing a paper at the moment for a presentation in London on the bankruptcy estate in personal insolvency law. And I have been working in that field on and off for a couple of years. A couple of years ago, I did an article with a colleague of mine, um, Dr. Coyote Akintola, probably well known to members of this group. And we looked at how the institution of receivership was likely to fare in the years to come. Prior to the court report and prior to the Enterprise Act, receivership was a very important corporate insolvency regime in the UK. It's now lost much of its vigour and you get perhaps one or two cases per year. But that doesn't mean that receivership has died. There is an argument that administration, particularly where it's initiated by a qualifying floating charge holder, is just another form of receivership. There's also the fact that receivership is multipurposive, multifunctional. So it is used increasingly in solvent company disputes where there's a dispute between participators in a company. Receivership can be used as, as a temporary solution. More importantly, it's used as a form of equitable enforcement of judgment debts in this country. So a judgment debtor won't pay up. One way of dealing with the issue is to seize the judgment debtor's assets through receivership. So receivership will continue, but in different form. That particular article was published in the 2020 Journal of Corporate Law Studies. Okay, so it seems you have been busy and you are busy. I, don't, I think many people don't realize how much time things like annual updates and so on can take. Yeah, I mean, particularly with the advent of neutral citation, the Bailey system, almost every day there's going to be some sort of case involved that needs to be added to the annotations. So, yeah, we, we are suffering, and it's not a bad position to be in. We are suffering from an excess of information. I remember, if I can be nostalgic, going back to the 70s, you'd hear on the grapevine that a certain case had been decided, but there was no access to a transcript. You had to write sort of begging letters to solicitors and barristers trying to get transcripts of important cases. So the younger generation of academics are in action 
quite a good position now in that the information is there, but there is an information overload issue. Yes, exactly. I mean, we are we are quick to complain about being too busy, but it's I guess it's better than the alternative of having no new developments. So there's benefits to having all this new information. But as you say, it gets harder and harder to sift through them to find the most important ones. Yeah, yeah. So, for example, every, virtually every legal jurisdiction has had rules to offer breathing space during the COVID period, but yes. trying to keep up to date with those and whether they've now expired or not is just almost impossible. And so I, I can hardly keep up with my own country's um, initiatives yeah. on a daily basis. So, Yes, no, that, that, that is undoubtedly true, yeah. So your own writing process, how do you approach your, your writing? Do you have any routines? Do you, is there anything you do to inspire yourself? How do you approach your writing? Well, on the one hand, I have ongoing commitments. The annotated guide, you know, that is an ongoing commitment. I also um, contribute to other books and collections of essays, etc. So to some extent, I'm deadline driven. But occasionally, I come across issues and ideas, which I think I want to do some research on that. So I start scribbling down either in the notepad or more usually these days on my laptop to just get basic points and ideas down. And it might take several months before I've got the basis for an article there. And then, of course, it's a question of developing the, the discussion so you, you've got something that is of you know, sufficient academic quality. I used to do a fair amount of what I would call knowledge transfer work, which is important. That, to some extent, has disappeared now, and I'm trying to focus on the more scholarly type article when when I have the time, basically, and that mm. that's a, that is always the issue. Really, there there are lots of distractions. I'm frequently called upon to external PhDs in other institutions, in addition to my own doctoral students. So that that is a fairly heavy commitment, and in a sense, I feel I can make a contribution to the pool of academic scholarship in insolvency law through that particular route. There are certainly a number of young academics I've been involved with either as supervisor or as an external examiner, and I do try to keep in touch with them. Okay, great. And do you ever find yourself in a position of having writer's block or something like that, and you, you're struggling to focus or you're trying to write and it's not working? Do you have anything that you do to try and get yourself back on track? Yeah, well, I am fortunate in that, although it's probably true to say that insolvency is my main research area, I do have other research areas. So I'm interested in solvent companies. I did a talk on fair prejudice, um, minority shareholder protection, derivative claims, that sort of area. So I can always go off on a tangent into solvent company law, particularly private companies. I've also got an interest in partnership law, so I try to keep up to date in that area. And I do touch upon aspects of property law, have an interest in legal history, 
many, many years ago. I wrote quite a bit in the field of education law, which doesn't really fit with the picture. But I have, you know, I'm always prepared to diversify. I often have several pieces on the go at the same time, different stages of development. So if you are bored with one issue, you can switch on to another one for a couple of weeks. And I often find taking a break helps because when you return to the first piece you're working on, you can reflect on it. Well, this is going nowhere. Rubbish, let's just bin it. Or actually, this has got some potential. So I, I never work on one piece from start to finish without moving into other areas. So that's how I deal with the issue of writer's block, really. I think that's very good advice. And I, I've experienced it in a similar way myself because I also tend to work on more than one thing at the same time. And I usually reach a point where I feel like I'm just going to cause more damage than good now. So let me just leave it, do something else, take a break. And when you come back to it with a fresh perspective, it's amazing sometimes. All of a sudden, something makes sense that you didn't see before. If everything starts falling into place by just letting, I, I always call it, I need to let the concrete dry. I need to let the, the foundation just settle a bit and then I'll come back to it. Yeah, I think so. And ideas can come to you in the most curious of places. You could be sitting on a train, having a shower, et cetera, and it's, yes. where's my notepad quick? You know, like, let's get this down before I forget. So Inspiration can strike at the oddest time sometimes, or sometimes at the most inconvenient times. But they're often the best ideas. <laughs> yes, exactly. What advice would you give to a student who is finishing with their legal studies right now and they're about to enter into the real world, what would you tell you? What do you tell your own students? Well, uh, first of all, I think I'd question the phrase, the real world. I'm not sure I know what the real world is. I assume you mean practice for that. I think it's increasingly difficult, say, for the, more, the most exceptional students to move from first degree through professional courses and then into practice. Many students have to accept gap years, working as paralegals. So I think, you know, just getting your feet on the first rung of the ladder is important. It's not an easy transition. I go back to my own experience, you know, in 75, 76, that's exactly what I experienced. And that's how I became an academic increasingly we're finding students taking on a fourth year doing a master's so for example if during their undergraduate degree they haven't really exposed themselves too much to business law they might well do an llm in the business law field in order to change their cv character really so there is no easy advice you just have to persevere. I know in 75, 76, I had dozens of rejections, huge pile of them. And rather than just bin them, I use them really as motivational material. I'm going to prove these characters wrong. In fact, I failed to do that. One, one law firm says, we, we like you and we think you're bright, but you're an academic. We can sense that. They were absolutely spot on. So motivation, just persevere, you know, don't allow yourself to be depressed by rejection letters. 
use it as motivational material. And it certainly, I had difficulty getting my first lectureship and I had a few rejections there. And I used that as motivational material for several years as an academic. Again, to prove people wrong. And I guess you did prove. I would hope I've done so. Certainly, um, I have worked hard. There's also an awful lot of luck involved. I think for my successful lectureship interview, I think there were three posts on offer and only five people interviewed. You know, it, things like that can happen. I got my chair because a major law firm wanted to put money into business law at my current university. And, you know, I was there, the incumbent. So luck is very, very important. You have to work for it. But if an opportunity arises, you have to seize it. You know, I see it's, you know, being at the right time, at the right place, and all these things come together and, you know, the stars align. Yes. Didn't Napoleon say that what he wanted more than anything from his generals was lucky generals? And I think that's true. Yes, definitely. And what advice would you give to young researchers specifically? So persons who are um, who want to get into research or who are busy with their doctorates or what advice would you give them? Are, are there any pitfalls that they should look out for? Any, any things that you would advise them not to do or to do? I think a lot depends on the, the stage of their research career. Assuming they're still working on a PhD, I think the answer is to self-discipline and to push on, which I think, in fact, most PhD students do. They have a time scale. Most universities now offer opportunities to do some teaching or to undertake research-related courses. Take advantage of those. It's all at this stage about CV building, building your resume. If you have an opportunity to, to write even a short piece, take it. My first article was published in the Solicitor's Journal, and it dealt with an Irish title retention case. Um, that was, you know, while I was still a postgraduate, I was encouraged by Professor Pennington to write it, and I wrote it. So take opportunities to write, to build your CV, join bodies like Insol, Insolvency Lawyers Association, bodies like that. Interact, take the opportunity to interact, to make contacts. It's a completely different world to the world I grew up in. I grew up in a fairly isolated environment where you just went into the library in the day, went home at night and wrote up your research notes. There weren't conferences for young researchers in those days. There was no internet in those days. So it was a very sort of monastic, solitary lifestyle, which I've had some difficulty in shaking off. I'm still probably am a fairly solitary figure. But for young people these days, there are fantastic opportunities and they should seize them. And in terms of research funding, start at the, the beginning. You know, normally your law school or your faculty will have some small funds available. Start building up a credible track record. Don't forget, if you work in an insolvency, 
your work is likely to be of interest not merely to law funding bodies, but to accountancy funding bodies. Now, I did get some early grants in those early days through bodies like the ACCA, ICAEW, etc. So don't be too parochial in terms of what you're going to for funding. Try and make contacts with practitioners or academics working in different disciplines, economics, accountancy, etc. I think that will certainly improve your prospects of securing funding in later life. Thank you very much. Yeah, I think that's really excellent advice. And I could just also add to people who are listening, if you're looking for a good networking opportunity, remember Insol Era, the young academics under Insol. So please contact us if you are not involved with us yet. We would love to, to welcome you to join our activity. So this ends the more formal part of the interview. I just now have a couple of informal questions just to round things off. So the first one is, what book has influenced your life the most? Your favorite book or books that you have read that has influenced you greatly in your life? I think if I was honest, it would probably be Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. Because that seemed to me to be such an incredible work of imagination and detail. And goodness knows how many times I've read it. I became obsessive with it at the time. I remember taking it out from the local library in Birmingham and reading it. And I just couldn't put the book down. And to find somebody who could produce work like that was just a revelation to me. So the, the love of reading. I still read a fair amount in my spare time. I rarely read law books. So I've just finished a book, which I should have read 30 years ago. It's been given to me by a friend, uh, Sir Kenneth Cork's autobiography, Cork on Cork. Why I didn't read it, well, it was published in the late 80s. Why I didn't read it before now, I do not know. It's probably one of my great regrets in life, but I've just finished reading it, and I think it's an absolutely brilliant book. And for any young academic who wants to understand the background to the Cork Report, I would say it's absolutely essential reading. Okay, great. Is there anything that has happened in your life that at the time seemed like a failure, but it actually turned out to be a good thing in your life or it led to great success later in your life? I think the difficulties in securing a training contract at the time, it was seen, I certainly viewed it as a failure because I, I mean, I was well set up for a first class degree. So at the time it seemed a failure, but of course it then pushed me onto the academic side of the things. And in retrospect, it was one of the, the great, um, you know, positive developments in my life. Again, I think having difficulty in securing my first lectureship gave me the motivation in those very early years, and it drove me forward, undoubtedly. I would point to those, I think, probably as failures that weren't failures in retrospect. Yes, yes. But obviously in that moment, it feels like a failure. But as you say, after the time, it it seems it's much better. 
Yeah, and I think the advice I would give to young people is you just need to sit back and reflect, don't be hasty. I suppose I believe in fate to some extent. You know, there's no point in getting really depressed about this sort of thing. You know, there are other ways forward. Then what you just said actually ties in sort of with the next question. And the question is basically, if you, in a couple of words, can give a message to the whole world, you can have a billboard where you can put a quote on there, whatever it may be, a a quote or a message or a a sentence or a couple of words, what would be your message to the world if you had your opportunity? I think don't be over hasty. Um, Don't rush into things. Yeah, when opportunities arise, you need to be prepared to seize them. But sometimes it's a particular problem with emails. If you get an email that upsets you years ago, I would have been tempted to reply instantly. But my my view now is sleep on it. Don't reply instantly. Don't get involved in an email war with somebody over something that doesn't really matter. And if you've made a mistake, and I'll put my hands up here, I have made mistakes in life, it's probably better to apologize and to patch things up rather than to bear grudges because they benefit nobody. Great. Yes, I think that's that's really good advice, especially as you say in the age of emails. It's so easy to quickly respond and then you make things worse than what it was before. Yes, sleep, sleep on it, basically. You know, it may be that the email hits your laptop at a time when you're in a bad mood. Have a decent night's sleep and then your, your mood changes and your response changes. Yes. So um, in the last five years or so, have you adopted any new habits or new beliefs or anything new in your life that has changed your life for the better? Well, in the last five years, the, the big change, of course, has been covid and how we teach students. I spend an awful lot of time on MS Teams, whereas previously I would have been in face-to-face meetings with students. Now, on the one hand, there are benefits in that, the fact that you're not commuting as much. On the other hand, you know, there are issues um, some students do prefer face-to-face meetings, and I'm quite happy to to oblige. What I found in probably 2020 was that a vast amount of work was required to convert my lecture notes delivered by traditional means into notes that were suitable for virtual teaching. Huge amounts of capital investment. And at the time COVID came along, I was thinking of retiring. But then I put this large amount of work in. I thought, well, I I should hang around for a couple more years just to get a return on that investment, really. And that is my current position, really. That has certainly been a change. The whole COVID situation has probably led to me becoming more insular again. I think that's inevitable. But that's beginning to to break up now. Thank you very much for the very interesting and valuable information and advice that you've given us. I'm sure the persons listening would have also learned a lot and enjoyed this. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening and joining us today. And especially 
to David Norman. Thank you very much for, for giving us your time and your wisdom and your experience. We really, really appreciate it. Thank you very much for the contribution you've made in this field and the hard work you do with your teaching and research and the updates and so forth. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you. If you have enjoyed this podcast, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast provider so you don't miss an episode. Contact us on LinkedIn and Twitter at Insole International using the hashtag Insole Talks. The information provided is intended for a general audience and reflects the personal views of the participants. This podcast is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License. Thank you for listening.